0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, children ages 4 and 5 can be dismissed, I think, over that way. And uh, let me ask you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 8. Exodus 8 is where we will be. Um, We're going to continue to walk through this book. Was I supposed to say children's church? Okay, I just, I thought maybe I had stuck my foot in my mouth, and I'm glad I didn't. So, Ethan and I will just have staff meeting right here. You guys hang on. Um, uh, Exodus 8, we're going to continue to walk through this. Um, isn't it good to come to the house of God, to, the, to this place, and worship with other believers? I'm so glad that we sing the songs we sing, that we sing together, that worship doesn't stop when the music stops. That we come to the word of God because we know that what we're saying is true. That we have no king but King Jesus. And that today, even after a decision that was made in our country by the Supreme Court, that we still have a king who's on his throne. And we worship him and him alone. Aren't you glad for that? Uh, I I thought it was so well said by Russell Moore this week that that Jesus is still Alive, that he's still out of the tomb and nobody can put him back in. Regardless of what goes on, we still worship a resurrected king. And one day, everything that he has told us is going to happen will indeed happen. And so I appreciate the way Greg set the tone this morning with responding to that with grace, that we are not those in ivory towers looking down and casting judgment, but that we need the grace as much as anybody. We all need grace, and the only answer is the gospel. And so let's turn our gaze this morning to the Word of God to see the God of this Bible and worship Him through that today. Let's look, if you will. I'll go ahead and tell you before I start reading. uh, Last week... Uh, I had, I think, six or seven pages of notes, and I got through about three of them. And so I cast aside uh, four of those and just held on to them for this week. And so uh, I labored this week and turned those four pages into about six. And so you're going to get sort of part B of frogs. Why would God do that from Exodus chapter 8? Because I never really got to frogs last week. And uh, we're going to look at this uh, together. Uh, But I just want us to see the God who is laboring here to set his people free. So let's look at Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you. Remember, he's speaking to Pharaoh and your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said... Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I'll let your people go. I'll let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile." And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did, according to the word of Moses... The frogs died. They died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the, and the land stank. And when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Well, last week, uh, when we looked at these first, really, first two verses, really, we, uh, we kind of dove in and really honed down on what was there. Uh, the first thing we said was that God's not interested in anything less than the complete and unconditional freedom of His people, and uh, God is committed just as He's committed to. He was committed to setting the Egyptians free. He's also committed to setting us free who are trusting in the Lord, that He's going to, He has set us free from sin's penalty in in judging sin on Jesus instead of us, that He is setting us free from sin's power, that daily we are being set free and sanctified and and being set free from the power of sin in our lives, and, and that we're on this course of becoming more and more and more holy throughout our lives. And one day God will set us free from sin's Presence. And we will be in the presence of God himself, and there will be no more sin or, or the effects of sin. We will not worry about uh, judgments being handed down from the Supreme Court or, or anywhere else. We will be in his presence where sin is no more. That's a great thing. Then we talked about that, that God has, in this verse, began to provide ample warning before executing judgment. That he doesn't owe Pharaoh any kind of warning, but he gives it to him anyway. That God's grace leads him there. And, uh, and I just, again, want to reiterate that God doesn't owe any of us warning either, but time and time and time again, in, in a myriad of different places and in a myriad of different voices, he has given us warning over and over again and been patient with us that we would believe. If you're here today still on the fence toying with whether you should trust the Lord or not, what are you waiting for? God is patient with you turn and believe. When I ended last week with this, when when God gives an opportunity, gives a person warning, and gives them an opportunity to submit by warning them first, uh, threat of consequence doesn't guarantee submission. Um, Bargaining with God is not the same thing as submission. Uh, Desperation can produce this temporary uh, submission that often goes away once there is, as the text says, a respite. The, the consequences go away, then we kind of forget about those commitments that we've made to God. And even undeniable evidence is not enough to guarantee submission. And, and we see this in our own hearts as well as the culture. How many times has God given us warning and, and shown us these things and given us undeniable evidence and, and, and we just continue to harden our hearts and choose our own way. Our own way. We make promises to God but oftentimes we fail in those promises when the the pressure of the situation goes away. This is kind of a snapshot of our culture, but also of us, and we need to be aware of those tendencies. Uh, I, I didn't get to this last week, but I think we should look at Pharaoh here like we're looking into a mirror. That when we see Pharaoh's response to God, that we should not stand and say, Look how awful and evil Pharaoh is. Instead, we should say, Pharaoh gives me a picture of my own heart. That time and time again, I'm given the opportunity to trust the Lord and obey him, and my sin leads me to reject and disobey. In our sin, we will fight and claw and argue and do the illogical to hold on to the throne of our life. And you know that to be true. How many times have you said Something like, and this is just a for instance, but something like, this year's gonna be the year that I'm gonna read the Bible every day. And you get like two weeks into January and then you're, you're off track, right? We make these promises and, and the reality is the law shows us the wickedness of our heart. These, these promises we make show us just our own inability to make ourselves pleasing before the Lord. So time and time again, we're forced to come to this place of, I can't. God, you can. Thank you for Jesus, right? That's where we are. So be aware of these tendencies in your heart and don't get caught up in this pride of trying to do life without God or only calling on him in a a pinch, keeping him in your pocket in case you ever need him. Well, here's where we'll, we'll go today. Third point in this sermon after those two is this. God has quite the sense of humor but he alone will have the last laugh. God has quite the sense of humor, but he alone will have the last laugh. In verses two through four, he he talks about these frogs and uh, how they're gonna come up everywhere. And we say, frogs? Really, God, frogs? Uh, Of all the things, frogs, really? Uh, You know, I started as I was thinking through this, kind of how frogs have been portrayed in the last several years in our culture. We think of things like bud, wise, wise. Er right you remember, and that was, it was, and if you, were, if you were not born uh, like prior to I guess two thousand you don 't know what i 'm talking about i don 't know when that came out, but uh, that was an old Budweiser commercial, and um, then we, we think of things like Kermit, and i 'm going to refrain from doing my impression of Kermit because it 's not very good, and, uh, and you would only laugh at me. We think of things like Jace annoying Willie on Duck Dynasty, right and putting frogs all in Willie's office. And it, we, we think about, the last thing you think about with frogs is that they're, that they're dangerous or that they're an instrument of judgment. I mean, no one protects them, their, their property and, and, and their person by, you know, stockpiling frogs. You know, nobody does that. Like someone breaks in your house, I'll throw frogs at them. You know, that's, but that's what God does here, right? Uh, he, he kind of brings frogs out. The Hebrew, when you look back at the Hebrew, the language, there's no word for frog. It, it, they don't even know really what to say. It, it's a word really that literally means just croaker. And it's a croaker. They did, there's croakers running around, right? They're, the frogs in this day, they're not dangerous. They're not, a, they're not really, they're just more of a nuisance. They're really nothing more than crocodile food in Egypt. But yet God uses this small, insignificant thing to bring a kingdom to its knees and to bring a people to see him for who he really is. You say, well, let me, before I get too far ahead of myself, you, you look at the scene and the word here that the Bible uses is swarm. I told you last week, it's the, it's the word team. It's the same word that God used when he was creating and when he creates uh, the the animals that would live in the oceans of the world, that that the waters would teem with life. It's, It's a word that is similar to what we read in the beginning of Exodus when the people of Israel multiplied so rapidly that they became a problem for this Pharaoh, for this king. That they were just sort of filling the land and whatever he wanted to do, nothing worked to sort of squelch the growth of this people. The land was teeming, really, not with Egyptians, but with Israelites. And so God here is using this to remind us that even in the little things, God's in control. There's frogs everywhere. I mean, picture this scene in their houses, in their bedrooms, on their beds, in their ovens. It's the last place you would think a frog would go. But frogs are so everywhere that they can't help it. They end up in ovens and kneading bowls. Picture the scene. Kids around the house and mom's in the kitchen and mom's making bread and as she's kneading this dough, frogs come out of the dough and she screams and the kids laugh until they look over and there's a frog on them and then they scream. There are frogs everywhere. Frogs are on Pharaoh and his person I mean, it, it, it's an amazing sight. Well, you say, what's the point? There's nothing God can't use to get to you. God's not afraid of, of using the weak, small, and despised things of this world to accomplish his will. I remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about that coming back from the beach, there's sand all in my car. There's not a grain of sand anywhere that God can't, can't call at any moment to accomplish his will. And, uh, and, you know, there's still sand in my car and I kind of wish he'd call some of that sand to, to do something somewhere. But, but this is just another reminder of that, that even the frogs that live in the Nile are at his beckoning. They're to be used at his disposal. This is not what our culture teaches us, is it? That, that we're sort of invincible in our day? That uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not exactly a recent song, but uh, the song Titanium, Bulletproof. Uh, maybe you don't know that song. The young people, I'm sure, know that song. The lyrics say, I'm bulletproof, nothing to lose, fire away, fire away. Ricochet, you take your aim, fire away, fire away. You shoot me down, but I won't fall. I am titanium. This is sort of the message of the culture saying to a, to a generation, nothing can touch you. Do what you want to do, follow your own heart. And, and as long as you do that, everything's going to be great. And the reality is, the younger generation, as well as all of us, need to understand that none of us are beyond the touch of God anytime He wants, that He has a million ways. To accomplish his will in the world and in our life, I mean, you think about this, think about how fragile you and I really are to the younger generation here today, to students here, your entire reputation, and really maybe not just maybe maybe not so large as your reputation, maybe so, but at least your day can be ruined by small things, can it? A zit ruin your day. I remember in high school. I got his debt one time so bad right here in the middle of my eyes. It was so bad they called me spot for a week. And it, I mean, it just ruined me, right? Your, your day, your reputation can be ruined if, if you wear something that's not the right label, right? Uh, There's there such small things, a breakup, a Facebook post. These things can, can ruin your image. Adults. The course of our life can be altered by small things as well. You think about this. You don't know today what will happen. I, I don't, I don't want to use this pulpit to create fear and panic, but you don't know what will happen when you go out from here and get in your car and leave to go to lunch. A car wreck can change your life, the trajectory of your life, end your life possibly. You, you, we don't know if we're going to get out to our cars today. In my lifetime, I've been in multiple services where there have been heart attacks and strokes. We don't know when blood clots are going to break away and go to the brain. Something as small as a bee sting for someone who's allergic. You you think about that. There's there's a million ways, and I'm not saying that God is, is, is sort of like that cat toying with that mouse before he puts it out of his misery. Please don't get that image. But understand that God, we often say God has a sense of humor, but we have to remember the place where we stand, that he alone will have the last laugh. He has a million ways to accomplish his will in the world and in your life. And it should cause us to to fear, but that fear for the Christian is is a worship because we come through the person of Jesus Christ Knowing that God is not for our evil, but He's for our good. And it is a wonderful place for us to rest. More than, more than God just sort of accomplishing His will through these small things. God is again, I want to remind you, God is going to attack strategically the gods of Egypt. That that God is going to He's going to take them down one by one by one. And he's doing that here. One of the gods in in Egypt of the eighty or so gods that were there was a god named Hecate. Um, Hecate was a was a uh, god of fertility, goddess of fertility, I should say. She controlled. She was supposedly controlled the frog population by protecting crocodiles. Um, Egyptians believed that, that Num, which was another god, fashioned human bodies on his potter's wheel, but it was Hecate who actually breathed life into those bodies and, and brought them to life, which means that when an Egyptian woman was in labor, her only place really to turn was to Hecate. I want you to just let that sink in for a minute and feel the absolute hopelessness of that, to to turn to this idea here. Like someone saying, knock on wood. Maybe you do that. Have you been around people that do that and and they they say this is going to happen? Oh, knock on wood. Not that this is wood, but um, in some ways they're superstitious and feel that if they don't do certain things that the universe will be out to get them. Uh, I don't know if you heard this this week, but uh, Jokar Sarnayev, the uh, the Boston bomber, was convicted uh, this past week and was given the death penalty. And uh, he was given the opportunity to make a statement to the families of the victims um, there. And and this is what he said: If there's any lingering doubt, let there be no let let there be no more. I did it, along with my brother. I ask. Allah, to have mercy on me, my brother, and my family. He goes on to ask, he, he tells them he asks Allah to, to give them peace and give them rest. But do you hear the difference between the way Jokhar Sarnaev prays to Allah and the way we are taught in the Bible that we pray to the God of the Bible? Jokar Sarnaev is praying to Allah who takes pleasure in the murder of innocent people but gives absolutely no assurance that he is pleased with the murderer. Do you hear that? He has no assurance. Jokhar Sarnaev, who pulled this off with his brother and, and killed these, these dozens of people at the, at the Boston Marathon, has no assurance that even in that act that he is, he is okay and he's right with the law. You and I read in scripture that the finished work of Jesus gives us the assurance to know that if we are trusting in him alone that we are right with God, that God looks at us and doesn't see us but sees the righteousness of Christ given to us and that the penalty for our sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. We know we're saved. This is what's going on here in Egypt, this hopelessness that that when these women are there in labor, they're turning to this goddess to hopefully keep them safe, to give life to their baby, but they don't really know. Hecate is this goddess, and she's often pictured with, she's always pictured with the head of a frog. Sometimes she's pictured with the body of a frog as well. And what this did was, this made frogs in Egypt sacred. No, you couldn't kill a frog. So what happens when millions of frogs come up everywhere, and they are all under your feet, and they are everywhere around you? You can't kill them. You can't do anything about it. But you feel them squish under your feet, and you feel the weight of guilt of what you've done, they're everywhere, and you become sickened by the very thing that you worship. And what God is doing here is God is showing them the absolute insufficiency of their gods, but he's also making them be repulsed by their gods. That the very thing they can't do in the worship of their God, they're actually doing in the living of life, and they become repulsed. James Boyce said, Consequently, there was nothing the Egyptians could do about this horrible and ironic proliferation of the goddess. They were forced to loathe, I like that word, to loathe the symbols of their depraved worship. And when the frogs died, their decaying bodies must have turned the towns and countryside into a stinking horror. And God is is absolutely tearing down what they are worshiping right in front of them. And he's using frogs to do it. He's showing them that there is no God like Him. Oh, that God would do that in our day. Oh, that God would do that in our day within this faith family. That God would take the things that we seek fulfillment in outside of Him, exclusively outside of Him, and God would show us just how empty and repulsive that is. I'm not saying that within this faith family that we're not believers, that we're not trusting the Lord, that we're not saved. I believe we are. But how often do we turn to other gods that God would make us sick of them? We should plead for that. That God would do that on a national scale. That God would do that. We should plead for that. See, it's it's easy to Post things on Facebook. It's easy to, to talk about what's happened. But are you pleading with God to tear down the idols in our land? Starting with you first. This is where, this is where revival will come. When we as the church, and I don't mean to sound like a preacher, but that's what I am. When we as the church begin to say, my sin. My sin is an offense to a holy God. My sin is destructive to me. My sin is destructive to my family, to my church, to the name of Christ. Oh, that we would be a people that say, Father, forgive me, cleanse me of unrighteousness. Oh, that we would be a people that look to one another in this faith family and confess our sin to one another so that we might pray for one another and that we might guide one another with, with the word of God to walk away from those, that sin. This is a, uh, um, uh, just a, a plea that I have. Um, and I'm not talking just to you, I'm talking to myself as well. Well, here, here's the, the next point, fourth I guess in this sermon is, God is not a subject to be studied But the sovereign to submit to. God is not a subject to be studied, but the sovereign to submit to. Um, In verses 8 and then verse 15, this is where I take this from. In verse 8, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and says, Plead with God to take away these frogs, and if you do, then I'll let the people go to sacrifice to him. Now, when I say, when I make this point, I'm not saying that we shouldn't study God, we should. And I spent some time writing this out, so I want to read it to you uh, because I, I was trying to think this through. You can't know God without wanting to know more about him. If you know God, you want to know more about him. But you can know lots of things about God without knowing him at all. I mean that's a simple truth, but I think we need to be reminded of this: that God's let this subject to be studied, that we fill our heads with this knowledge, for knowledge's sake, but that knowledge should be in our heads, leading us to worship the God that we're studying. And Pharaoh doesn't do this here. Um, Several weeks ago, I was in uh, Starbucks on Woodruff Road, and I was studying for uh, one of these sermons in Exodus. and And one of the commentaries I use is uh, by Philip Graham Ryken. Um, it was a gift, actually, from Greg, Greg and Ethan, and uh, it is the thickest commentary I own. It is It is probably it's it's at least three, maybe even four inches thick. And this thing is just enormous. And I was sitting in, in Starbucks, and I'm reading this thing, and I kept noticing this um, this older lady um, just kind of she would just kind of look over there. She was kind of looking at what I was doing. And finally she walked over to me and she said, are you going to read that whole thing? And I think my response was, well, not today, you know, something like that. Uh, But the the conversation went from there. I told her what it was, told her what I'd do and and what I was doing. And uh, this lady had been married to a pastor and she was divorced from her former husband. And She gave me a stern word of warning, and she said, my husband reached the point where God was no longer the love of his life, the study of him was. And that led to the division between them, according to her account, and and they were divorced from there. And I just remember sitting there thinking, that's a good word from just someone, some stranger in a coffee shop. That if I'm coming to the Bible, or if I'm coming to books written about God, and I'm just coming there just to just to know about Him without knowing Him personally, then, then I've, I'm 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 lost in what I'm doing. Right? Look at what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh learns some things about God. He learns God's name when he when he goes to Moses and, and Aaron. He says, "Plead with the Lord." When just before this, in chapter 5, verse 2, he said, The Lord? I don't know the Lord. Who's that? But now all of a sudden he knows the Lord's name. He knows God's power. He's coming to them knowing that that this is something that only God, the God of the Israelites, can get rid of. He's watched his magicians three times now be defeated in their attempt to to correct this, this, uh, this miracle that's happened at God's direction. By the way, and I won't get into this, but this is the last time that the Egyptians' magicians will attempt to 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 do what God does through Moses and Aaron. This is it. Because I think Pharaoh sees here they're not doing anything but just making things worse. God knows that, or Pharaoh knows this is something that God alone can do. Um, and then... Pharaoh also learns God's requirement. He says, if you you plead with the Lord to take away the frogs, I'll let the people go to sacrifice to him. Now, I believe he's trying to bargain there and barter with God. But at the very least, he knows God's saying, let my people go. So he knows God's name. He knows God's power. He knows God's requirement. Yet in verse 15, Pharaoh refuses still to submit to God by keeping the people in Egypt. This just goes to show how much a person can learn about God without ever submitting to God. And, and, and as I've come to that, and as I had another week to kind of think on this, is that not a commentary on our current culture? Especially in the South in America. We know a lot about God, but there's not a lot of submitting to God going on. I think it was Christian Wright, I think, who wrote about moralistic, therapeutic deism, that, that when he did this, this research, he discovered that, that young people in America, uh, particularly young believers in America, were seeing God in, in those three ways, moralistic, therapeutic, deism, that, that God basically wants people to be good. We get that probably from the Ten Commandments and, and everything, that, that God is therapeutic, that he really wants the best for them. He wants them to be happy. So, so God's, God, God wants them to smile a lot. He wants them to get a lot of likes on their Facebook page and, and all that sort of thing, right? And that they believe God's more like the God of deism, that he's sort of up there, that he got all this started, but he's not necessarily concerned in the everyday outworking of our lives. So he's distant. He's not close. I believe this is a commentary on where we are. Pharaoh gives us not only a picture of ourselves, but of our culture that says, I know some things about God, but I won't submit to him. I think Matthew 7 is a stern warning from Jesus himself when Jesus said, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then will I declare to them I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. The reality is that if in that day Jesus never knew them then they never knew him. God is not a subject to be studied but the sovereign to submit to. I would just I would just plead with you today. I would plead with you today. To ask the Lord to, to go beyond. I I don't want to pit head against heart here. I'm not I don't want to I don't want to pit the mind against the emotions. There's some history here going back to the ancients, the ancient Greeks. Romans that would pit the mind against the emotions, that the emotions just needed to be suppressed and controlled with the mind. The emotions are important. I, I, I want to. I want to just ask you to plead with the Lord to move, move beyond your head, and that He would, that He would take up new space in your heart. And then I'm not pleading with you to ask Jesus in your heart the way we've said it for years. I'm saying that he would take up residence in such a way that he is real and intimate and that he is indeed that friend that you long to be with, that you long to talk with, that you long to hear from. Don't don't you think that we all need to grow there? Last is this. Um, just, just a couple, few more minutes. God, the fifth point is this. God hears and answers the cries of his people. God hears and answers the cries of his people in verses 9 through 14. Uh, I won't read all this again, but, but basically what happened. Uh, Moses goes, he prays. God does what Moses asks. The Frogs die, they gather them up in heaps, and the land stinks because God heard the prayer of Moses and answered that prayer. Matt Chandler, I was listening to some teaching from Matt Chandler, pastor of the Village Church in in Texas, um, on why we don't pray. Because I I think we can begin to talk about prayer in church, and guilt just automatically sort of comes over us. Because all of us know, most of us, I should say, we don't pray like we should. So Matt offered, I think, some helpful advice on why we don't pray. He said he believes, number one, because we have an unhealthy fear of God. And the reason he said unhealthy is because it's not this, it's not this fear that is worship of God, but it's this unhealthy, I've, I'm such a disappointment to God that, uh, that, that I can't approach Him, that I just need to avoid Him because He's so disappointed with me. So I won't, I won't talk to him at all. I'll just sort of, I'll just sort of try to hide over here and, and go under the radar so God doesn't have to deal with me because he didn't want to anyway because I'm such a mess. And that's one reason why we don't pray. The other reason he talked about was this, this functional atheism that we think we don't need God. That we would never say that out loud, but the way we live, that's what we're saying that we think we, we live our life never giving any thought that, that we need God for every breath and everything that comes our way. And, and we don't pray because we think, I got this. But then when something does come into our life that is beyond our control, and I'm not saying don't pray in those moments because absolutely pray in those moments, but that's how we treat prayers because we function as atheists, not believing in God, not looking to God until we need him. And the reality is we need him all the time. The point of this is we all need work in our praying, and and I don't want you to hear this and to take on the guilt, but instead I want you to hear the incredible promise that's here, that God hears and answers the prayers of his people. I mean, think about what an incredible, what an incredible possession that is for the believer. Listen, Let me give you just a few lessons on prayer, and we'll be through, is, is this. So, Number one, from this text, prayer shows our dependence on God and is an act of worship. What Pharaoh's doing here, even though Pharaoh may not admit it, he may not even known it, was he's admitting he needed God. This most powerful man in the world at the time is coming to Moses and Aaron and saying, I can't do anything about this. I need you to talk to your God. I mean, you think about this. Pharaoh must have come strutting in and trying to be as as pompous as he possibly could while at the same time asking for the help of the God that he denies. So even, here's what I would say to you, is even in this, this act from this reprobate king, God was glorified in that. Not glorified in such a way that Pharaoh was saved, but glorified in such a way that this one that denies the existence of God is turning to this God. He's turning and saying I need you and it's an act of worship even though it's not a willful act on or an aware act I guess I should say on Pharaoh's part. Secondly, not only does prayer show our dependence on God and, and it's an act of worship, but secondly, we should be bold and fervent in our praying. Moses gave Pharaoh the opportunity to name name the time Name the date. You think, that's pretty bold. I mean, have you ever been in conversation with with a coworker or or someone who's not a believer and say, you name the time. I'm going to ask God to do that for you. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm saying this is a special work of God right here, okay? So please please don't misinterpret that. But that's pretty bold, isn't it? I mean, this is putting God's reputation on the line. And Moses is bold in it. One of the questions that we have when we look at this is if there are frogs everywhere and Pharaoh's at the point of just get rid of these things, why does he say tomorrow? Why wouldn't he say today, now? (laughs) Don't wait. Well, commentators say probably one of two things. Either that he understands this is such an enormous problem that it's going to take at least, at least a day to talk to this God and, and, and He's got to have some time to clean this up. Or I think the better explanation is that he is looking at this enormous problem and he knows this thing is a nightmare. This thing will take months to clean up. There's no way he could do this by tomorrow. So he says, tomorrow. So even in his, I'm coming to God because I can't do anything about this. He wants to hold a, a trump card to be able to show himself more powerful than this God. And he says, tomorrow. Moses' boldness here reminds us, it reminded me as I, as I read through this of Elijah. First Kings eighteen, you remember the story where Elijah goes up against the prophets of Baal and he calls he he says, We're gonna set up these two altars and and you you have all of all of your priests over here and and they're gonna set up their altar and sacrifice and lay it there, and you're gonna pray and do what you do to Baal and ask him to call down fire from heaven, and then I'll do the same thing to my God. And the Bible says there in First Kings eighteen that they danced around, they cut themselves, they did everything they could do to, to move Baal to bring fire on this altar. And, and the whole time Elijah is over there saying, where's your God? Maybe he's busy. Literally, maybe he's in the restroom is what, is what Elijah says to him. And then after all this is exhausted, Elijah goes and he prays a simple prayer. And God sends fire from heaven. Even after soaking this sacrifice so that it cannot be consumed and God Consumes the sacrifice. This is a bold prayer on the part of Elijah. And I'm not telling you to, in front of your co-workers, call down fire from heaven, okay? So please don't do that. But I am asking you to, to have faith in a God who says nothing is impossible for me. You know, I'm faced with this reality when I walk into a hospital room when someone is, is it looks bleak. And I stand there as their pastor. And I, I, I'll just be honest with you. I wrestle with this unbelief in my own heart that sometimes I don't know that I should be praying that God would heal them. But I'm also reminded, if God wants to, nothing can stop him. So in those moments, I'm saying, God, you've asked me to pray this way. So God, if it's your will, God, heal this person. Knowing that he can. He can. It's not always his will, but we should be people that pray bold and audacious prayers to the God who is capable of anything. Not only that, but but the fervency. Moses' fervency is, is seen, boy, I'm up against the clock, I'm sorry. Moses' fervency is seen in the fact that he cries out. It's the same, it's kind of the same language that's used to talk about Jesus in Hebrews 5 where it said, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That Jesus modeled this fervency to cry out to the Lord. That he was so moved that he wept in his praying. Church, when is the last time we were so moved by injustice in our world, by sin in our world or in our life that it moved us to weep and ask him to change us, to deliver us from that. Moses here prays that way. We should pray for our enemies. Verse 9 displays that. When Moses prays for Pharaoh, this is a teaching of the New Testament later on, but Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, 'You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Notice that Jesus never says, Moses never displays for us that the mission or the message changes. But the way we respond does. That we still speak truth. That we still preach the gospel. That we still hold the standard that the word of God holds. But we do so in a loving and winsome way. And we pray for those that disagree with us. Fourth lesson on, on prayers that we should remember that God hears and answers the prayers of his people, we should turn to him, we should run to him often we shouldn 't farm out our prayers the way Pharaoh here does to Moses and Aaron. Now Pharaoh does this because he doesn't I mean, he knows god 's name, but he doesn 't know God intimately, but I think sometimes as believers as members of a church. It's easier to come to church and share a prayer request than it is to pray. Let's don't be people that farm out our prayer requests. As children of God, filled with the Spirit, let's be people that pray. Luke 11, I'll just share this verse in closing. Luke 11, uh, verses 9 through 10 says, I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. In that passage, in the context of that passage, if a a sleepy friend who's already gone to bed will get up to help a friend in need. If an earthly, sinful father, when his son asks for a fish, We'll not give him a snake to trick him. How much more will our heavenly father give us those things that we ask when we ask according to his will and for his glory? God hears and answers the prayers, the cries of his people. So here's the conclusion. Looking at this sermon as a whole, God will stop at nothing to set us free. He is right now giving ample opportunity for you to turn from your sin and trust him through trusting the work of Jesus alone. But there will come a time when that warning will stop. And I want to ask you to right now stop and consider the seriousness of where you are. That this is the day of salvation. And that day will one day come to an end. it will be impossible for anyone to cry out for mercy to God. Until that day comes, for the believers in the room, cry out to God knowing that he hears and answers the cries of his people. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, I thank you that you love us. God, I pray that you would take this passage today, this sermon as I've tried to preach by the power of your spirit according to what was written in your word God I pray that you would take it and God that you would accomplish your will through it for your own glory I pray in Jesus name, amen I want to give you an opportunity to reflect to respond how the Lord's moved, how the Lord has spoken to you, you know what needs to be done if you're here as an unbeliever and today you want to turn from your sin and trust the Lord and be saved today, the Bible says you can do that. And I'd be glad to help you with that. And I'm gonna be seated down here on the front. Love to speak with you just in the middle of this song here at the end. If you'd like to get up and come see me, I'd, I'd love to help you. I'd love to talk with you. There will be people out those doors in a prayer room that would be more than willing to just pray with you. Maybe you are Maybe you are a believer but there is something in your life that is hard and difficult and pressing, and you just need to come to a brother or sister and pray, then do so. Whatever God is calling you to do today in response to the preaching of his word, then I'm going to ask you just to be obedient. Whatever he says, the answer is yes. Let's worship him.